Welcome to A Politic. This is episode two. And I'm your host, Bill. This is a progressive discussion of politics for people who hate politics. And the goal of this podcast is to encourage voter registration and voter participation in a process of transformation of our society in a more progressive direction. We would like to see things improve for everyone. Unless everyone is improved, then we can't really say that we're being progressive because this is a winner, uh, everyone being a winner, not just a few people being a winner. So I'm a uh, former psychologist, and I'd like to welcome my friend Steve. Again, we're both 70 years old, but our generation came up in the 60s and the 50s, and we were the first generation to realize that the civil rights movement needed to make progress in our society, that unless everyone improved and everyone was involved in the process of improving, then we really weren't authentically improving as a country. So we're going to be looking at a variety of principles today. There are 15 principles, and we'll go through those. And that's the organizing foundation of progressivism. There are principles that must be taken into account as we're looking at progress. So Steve and I will be discussing that today. And again, we're trying to make these all around 15 minutes or less. So welcome to episode two. And we'll be joining Steve in just a second. briefly what we're trying to do here. We're trying to present high quality information in 15 minute segments that are designed to promote progress in our country. And there are many, many issues that we are interested in. We're really interested in the full range of issues that are affecting 100% of the country. We are not aimed at any one segment of our country, like the lower 10% or lower 50% or the upper 1% or the upper one-tenth of percent. We're really interested in the well-being of the country as a whole. So we want to try to look at these issues from the standpoint of how everyone is affected, and we believe that progress will help all people in the country. Now, in some cases, people will be helped by paying more taxes because they're contributing to a more stable society, and they're giving up some of the benefits that they've earned by their hard work in order to 
make a stronger society. In other cases, people who have been disproportionately working hard but not receiving benefits and experiencing disproportional taxation will be gaining benefit from this progress because they will be able to keep more of what they earn and not pay as high a tax rate. So we will be looking at changes that will look in the short run like, hey, you're being unfair to this group when you're proposing, for example, to have health care available to all people. However, we are going to be challenging some of these philosophies that people have been promoting for many years, and we are going to try to provide a rationale with data to support what we're saying. One of the things, uh, Bill, uh, for what you just got through saying is that um, the founders uh, of this nation, as, as imperfect as they were, uh, all human beings are flawed vessels, um, they left us uh, a template uh, for uh, our way of life. And uh, it revolves around the fact that the people of this country are the sovereign of the nation. We don't have a king. We don't have an emperor. And that the rule of law governs us all so that all people under our way of life should, in principle, be treated equally under that rule of law. And I think uh, the brilliance of our way of life is its fundamental premise, as you've been saying uh, previously, that it's we the people. We're all in this together. Uh, it's, we live in a society, our founders left us uh, the power of self-governance and, the, as I said, the rule of law. And as you were saying, as the society today and as it has in the past has used taxation to garner financial resources to do the public's uh, will, um, it becomes incumbent upon the sovereign, the people, uh, to manage and to follow with um, uh, some rigor uh, how those taxes are being managed. I mean, um, so the public and its oversight of how its money is being utilized. Uh, and then that depends on the level of the education of the sovereign, the people, so that they understand the mechanics of their way of life and how to utilize the, the levers of, of power, so to speak, to make sure that their quote-unquote elected representatives are doing the, the people's will. And that's why, obviously, we have the uh, at the national level uh, a, a Congress with two houses. And they, as an institution, in principle, are supposed to do the people's will. And I think one of the things that um, the country has let lax over the years is that we've, we've, we've kind of – there's a disconnect between the public, the sovereign in this case, and the mechanism that – manages the wealth that flows to the central government and then is uh, utilized to either enhance our way of life or uh, detract from it. But not only uh, is the national architecture of our way of life important, but it is also a, a, a structure that has local levels and county levels.
all together. It's not just uh, a top-down um, architecture. And um, the American people uh, have to become as grounded in their local levels of government, all the way down to um, you know the city level, the county level, uh, as well as the state level, that is as important, uh, if not at, more critical, than what happens at the national level. I think you're right, Steve, and what we're trying to look at in this progressive point of view is that there will be some solutions that make sense in certain areas that won't work in other areas. So again, we're not looking at a one-size-fits-all solution to progressivism, but we do want to use basic principles to measure the effectiveness of the policies, some policies are already in effect and are working decently well, but still need reform, such as Social Security and Medicare, but that many of the policies that we're currently dealing with, for example, dealing with the pandemic, dealing with our educational system that is struggling under a system which is very uh, inequitably funded and inequitably executed in terms of giving kids so little information and training compared to other students in the world. We are really struggling, I think, and that was before the pandemic made it potentially dangerous for kids to be in a school, for teachers to teach in a school, and for our educational system to supply highly educated, highly qualified new workers into our system. So at this point, I'd like to spend a few minutes discussing our core principles of the new progressivism. And again, these are our initial thoughts about these core principles. We've been thinking about this for the last couple of years, so this isn't just something we've talked about for a few minutes, but this reflects years of thinking about this. But again, we don't see this as necessarily the final and full declaration of principles that are etched in stone. So, Steve, why don't you tell us what those 14 principles are right now? Principles of the new progressivism. Um, uh, the first principle is uh, increases the civil liberties and personal freedom of the citizenry balanced by civic and personal responsibility. The second principle increases the freedom of personal and corporate enterprise balanced by personal and corporate accountability. The third principle increases civic and political engagement within a culture of respect and civil discourse. Principle four increases care and aid for members of our society who are disabled or otherwise unable to function at their full potential. Principle five increases the maximum expression of individual and public potential for all people. Principle six increases equity and opportunity for those who have historically been oppressed, particularly African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and women. 
Principle 7 increases equal protection and justice under the law. Principle 8 increases racial and economic integration in workplaces, neighborhoods, and schools. Principle 9 increases respect for the citizens and cultures of all nations. Principle 10 increases reliance on science and reason in decision-making. Principle 11 increases health and safety. Principle 12 increases protection of nature and the environment. Principle 13 increases governmental efficiency and reduces waste. And Principle 14 increases international cooperation and reduces interference in internal affairs of foreign countries. Now these principles will be available on our show notes and we encourage you to look at them and provide us feedback if you care to, what you think about these principles. And also, we'd like to encourage you to submit any ideas that you have as far as principles that would help to define making progress in our society. So we do welcome your feedback and comments. Now, we'd like to take just a minute to recap what we said in the first episode about the importance of registering to vote and voting November 3rd, which is Tuesday, November 3rd. Now, in order to vote, you have to be registered. And if you voted in 2018 and you did not move, you will not need to register. However, if you've moved or if anything changed, like you changed your name or whatever, you have to re-register. So it's important to do that. I'm going to ask Steve to, to recap what he said about online registration. Go ahead, Steve. For those residents living in Ohio, uh, the Secretary of State uh, of Ohio is Frank LaRose, and he does have a, uh, a very sufficient website that you can go to that uh, fills in and answers all the questions you may have regarding registration deadlines. Uh, this year, uh, the deadline for voting on the November 3rd, 2020 election is October the 5th. And um, if you moved out of the state of Ohio, there is also a, a web page on uh, the Secretary of State's web website that basically walks you through voter registration forms that are available there regarding uh, your status as a uh, voter. Now, these are the things you will need when you're registering to vote online. You will need an Ohio driver's license or the Ohio identification card number, your name, your date of birth, your address, and the last four digits of your social security number. You do not have to have any portion of the required information. Follow this link that's on the website for your voting address using the Secretary of State's paper form PDF. The rest of the information would be self-explanatory. Okay, now, that's online registration. You can also register by mail, and you can get that information at a website called eac.gov slash voter and we'll provide that link on the notes. But you can also register in person if you go to your county board of election. You can go to any public library 
You can go to the Ohio Bureau of Motor Vehicles. You can go to public high schools or vocational schools, although those will probably be closed. You can go to the county treasurer's office, or you can go to other state of Ohio offices, and like Job and Family Services, Department of Health, Department of Mental Health, Department of Developmental Disabilities, the Office of Opportunities for Ohio's with Disabilities, or the Office of any state-assisted college or university responsible for providing assistance to students with disabilities. So there are a lot of options, and uh, we want you to be sure to register so you can be sure to vote. We all really need to uh, do this as quickly as possible, and uh, there's no time like the present. So I hope you will all get out there and register to vote. So basically, we need every day for the next 90 days to get as many people registered, and that's only until October 5th, and then to get as many people voting and get their vote in in time so it can be counted. There will be a tremendous backlash by the current president to stop people from voting. And unfortunately, in many states, the Republican Party also participates in voter suppression. So we're not telling people how to vote, but we are encouraging people to vote so they can resist this effort to interfere with people's exercising their franchise as a member of this society to vote. We have just concluded the second episode of A Politic. We thank you for listening. We're looking forward to many more topics and going into more detail with our principles. The next time we'll deal with principle one in depth, and we're going to go through each one of the 14 principles in depth. So until next time, we'll see you again. Welcome to episode 9 of A Politic. This is the progressive discussion of politics for people who hate politics. And again, what we're trying to do is empower and encourage people to get registered and vote and to find out about the issues. We are going to try to inform you, give you some information about the progressive political philosophy. We are not partisan, we're not Democrat, we're not Republican, we're not independent. We're just progressive, that means we want to see things make progress. We want to see things get better for everybody. Not just the poor, not just the middle class, not just the upper class, but everybody.
So we're not trying to hurt anyone, we're trying to help everyone. So today, we're gonna talk about principle five of the progressive philosophy. And basically what we're talking about is that we, progressivism increases the maximum expressing of individual and public potential for all people. And basically what that means is that a progressive society educates and trains its people really throughout their life, from the earliest stages to the later stages, so that no matter when you're alive, you could potentially access training and education to improve your ability to function and express yourself. It's never too early and it's never too late. Or the way I'd like to say it is, from before the cradle to beyond the grave, you can start training children when they're still in their mother's wombs. They can have daycare, preschool, that will help them learn. They can have school between ages six and 22. And then as they get older, they may wanna go back to school and learn new skills. So welcome to episode nine. Okay, welcome to episode nine of A Politic. And today we're gonna talk about principle five of the progressive philosophy. And basically principle five says increases the maximum expression of individual and public potential for all people. And really what we're talking about there is education and training So, a hundred years ago, people began to realize that six years or nine years of education was not enough. That you needed to have 12 years of education. And eventually, over the next hundred years, they began to realize, oh gee, we need to start getting kids ready for first grade. So we had kindergarten. Then they began to realize, hey, kids can start learning even earlier than that. So they started preschool. And eventually they began to learn those that are studying education, those that are studying the human brain, began to see that you could learn actually even before you're born, that the brain begins to organize itself and kids start learning in their mother's wombs. So then society began to realize, okay, well, we really start, we need to start what is called pre-K, pre-kindergarten. 
and kids began to start seeing openings for them to go to school starting when they were about one or two years old and that there was something called daycare or childcare available for those who are young in that age range of three to six months old and their mothers need to work so they have to be given childcare. So now we have a system which is informally organized to start essentially fairly soon after birth and extends up till age 18. And what we're talking about here is to progress to the point where kids can continue in school with post high school education where they earn a, an associate's degree and a bachelor's degree, even up to a master's degree by the time we're 22. And a, few, a number of years ago, the state of Ohio started something called Program 60, which basically allowed people to go to school for free starting when they were 60 years old, although they couldn't earn a degree, but they could attend classes at any state-supported college at no charge. So what we're talking about here is to expand that further to the point where you can go to school throughout your life and it's a publicly funded process, meaning the money doesn't come directly out of your tuition. You're not charged a tuition. However, what we assume is that as you get more education, as you qualify to earn more money, that you will ultimately be paid, paying more taxes. And so that helps to fund the system. That increased skills bring about increased income, which brings about increased support for the publicly funded system. And we'd like to see that extend from the cradle to the, to the end of life. Now, Steve, you've been listening to me describe this and you've had your own thoughts about it and we've talked about it in the past. What are your thoughts as far as this issue of public support of education that will help individuals achieve their maximum functioning ability, their maximum ability to express themselves, their maximum ability to earn income, start businesses, or just operate in life? What's your thoughts? Well, Bill, I mean, there's an old saying that uh, you, you never stop learning your entire lifetime. Uh, just because you've got a diploma uh, doesn't mean that you won't be learning in your 40s, 50s, 60s. So uh, education, as they say, is a lifelong endeavor. I think that that everything that you said in terms of the architecture of what should happen to young generations as they they get older and move into the society is 
the the ultimate value of the education that they are receiving. It's it's one thing to have the the architecture and the mechanics of uh, you know K through twelve or pre K you know onto you know uh, college. But at the end of the day, when you're handed the, the quote unquote the sheepskin, do you have the skill sets uh, ingrained sufficiently enough in that education that you can then enter a workforce uh, in a manner in which the employer is saying, hey, you've got all the skills we're looking for, or rather than saying, well, gee whiz, you need some remedial work here. Uh, I mean, that does happen. But if, I mean, one of the things that always struck me about um, the education of, uh, I'll just pick on the Columbus Public School District in central Ohio, uh, I don't know whether they still have it, but they had various kinds of attendance uh, diplomas. So you could literally get a high school diploma and have failed all your courses. But the diploma is based on your attendance record. So if you were in the classroom sitting in your seat, not learning anything, but they could say you were there 95% of the time, you would get a graduating diploma. But that document isn't going to be worth anything. So just saying that you've graduated isn't in and of itself the, the gold standard. The gold standard is the actual utility of the quality of the education you've you've received so just to say okay i was in class 95 percent of the time but i never passed anything but thanks for my diploma you know go out and make a life for yourself it's it, it, it'd be very discouraging so i think that what i'm trying to to say here is that this infrastructure that you've been de- describing is 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 uh very appropriate but at the end of the day, the value of the end product is going to be the proof of the pudding. And if if you just have something you can hang on the wall and say, hey, I graduated, but then you go out to fill the of the, your potential employer and you go, oh, gee whiz, I, I, can't, I don't know the answer to that or, or um, you know, uh, the quality of my penmanship is such that my the employer can't read what I've written, I think that you've done a disservice to the people who you've tried to educate and then you want to avoid discouraging them saying oh gee whiz all that time was was for naught and now i where do i go now so again i think you're correct in the architecture but i again it's the end product what does all that time and energy in that that system really avail you once you say, hey, I'm in the workplace now and I want to make a life for myself and then find it difficult to get a job because you don't have the skill sets. Well, that's what we're talking about here is a complete redesign of the system. Because while some schools are excellent at preparing their students for life, including higher education beyond high school, some schools are really poor, and we have a current system to evaluate schools, and we must recognize that failing schools are totally unacceptable. And so that's where we need to develop a greater um, 
a more accurate way to assess student performance and what they're learning. So, for example, someone is not learning how to read basic English. They're not learning how to write. They can't make their letters. Then we have to be able to help those students in their need areas. And we need to be able to develop new educational tools where our current edu educational tools are inadequate so that we ultimately don't have one student graduating from the system who is unable to function. And that is a very large goal. That's a huge goal because we're talking about kids who have all kinds of learning disabilities. We're talking about kids who have advanced skills. So we're trying to, to reach everyone. And there's a big uh, argument right now about school choice, how to avoid failing schools. So again, I'm talking about a complete redesign of the platform. One of the things that I think is, is sort of the cornerstone to any of your potential ideas and vision is the funding mechanism yes. for our school infrastructure. Now, I'm picking on the state of Ohio. Um, obviously, that's my home state, our home state. It's been, it, I would say, well over a decade, maybe more, that the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that property taxes are an illegal mechanism by which to fund public education. Right. Now, nobody at the local level has even abided by that. And so if property taxes are going to be the, are, you know, currently is the fundamental underpinning of the ability to have good schools, good teachers, good, good technology and texts, textbooks in the classroom, if you live in a community where the tax base is, ha is higher, the income level is higher, the property values are higher, then and that tends to be your suburban school system, then you've got a you've got a leg up. Whereas well, let's, in the let's just let's just assume that what the Supreme Court found as a illegal or an ill-structured system for funding, we have to end that. We have to stop that, and we have to come up with a new model for funding. That's a good the, idea. The key, the key to that, though, Bill, is if the if state Supreme Court has told the state legislature the current architecture is illegal, and the legislature doesn't do anything, which they have not done, then the public then, in terms of their stewardship of their government, has to look at their individual representatives and say, look, you're not doing the job. We're going to change people. We're going to get people in play. And that's where the election or the voting mechanics of our society kick in. But then it's only as good as the participation of the population. And it's, it's sort of like a circle. It's like a cat chasing its tail. You know, you have a Supreme Court saying it's illegal. The legislature at the state level is doing nothing to remedy it. And so the only remedy is to put in elected officials that will address the issue and pass legislation that can be signed by the governor. 
if people go, oh, I'm not interested in local elections, I don't want to vote, I'm not interested, then turn around and go, my kid's not getting educated, you, you've got to see how the whole thing comes back around to bite itself. Well, that's the point of this whole podcast, that we have a dysfunctional society. There are many areas that are broken, and the thing that we keep coming back to is that if 40% of the voters don't vote, we're not going to have a system that works. So again, we come back to the point where you and me and everyone who's in this society must vote. We must become informed. We've got to do our homework and then we've got to vote. And when we get closer to 70, 80, 90% voting, then all of a sudden the legislators who are not doing their job will be replaced and we'll get to some new systems. In, in a real sense, uh, Bill, education or the educational infrastructure of our nation from the national to the local level is the mortar that holds the civic identity of our nation together. And if that mortar is weak or in need of strengthening and is not taken care of, then like any other structure, the wall will collapse. And we need to be making sure that the blocks that hold our democracy together, which I believe is fundamentally the education of our people, once the people have a modicum of understanding of what it is that they need to do to be part of what is a participatory democracy, then you, that wall is sturdy. That wall will sustain itself in, in high winds. And, and otherwise, if it's weak, it'll fall over at, at the strongest gust of wind. And I think that that tends to be you know, where I think we are in an allegorical sense. Yep. Well, that is the end of our discussion for today. We will come back to this topic another time. But principle five is we must educate and prepare people, and then we need to get them to vote. So thank you, Steve. All right. You take care, Bill. Thank you for joining us for episode nine. Again, we hope you're going to register before October 5th, Monday, and then you'll start voting sometime between October 6th and November 3rd. Look forward to seeing you again next time.